Hey, Epiphany, good to be here with you. If only online, at least we can gather together and still hear from God's word, uh, still worship together in spirit and truth with great songs and talented musicians. And for that, we are blessed. Today, we're entering the third Sunday of the Easter season. And so far, we've looked at resurrection accounts from Matthew's gospel and John's gospel. And today, we're turning towards my personal favorite gospel, the Gospel of Luke, to detail yet another resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And yet, as we're, we'll see when we dig through the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to see that this resurrection appearance is very different and almost strange in comparison with the others. We pick up the story at Luke chapter 24, verse 13. It reads like this. That very day, meaning Easter Sunday, two of them, two of Jesus's disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the empty tomb, and it found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened up to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. End of reading. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you 
that we can hear from this word. May you give us eyes to see as we hear from this word, the risen Christ. May we recognize you today as we hear from this word. Speak through your imperfect servant now, I pray, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, this is going to sound weird, so just stick with me here for a second. But every single one of my children has had a moment or two in their life where they actually didn't recognize me as their father. Now, I'm not talking about like when they were infants, obviously. I mean, that, you know, there's a time period where they can't even really see. But I'm talking about like when they were old enough, they knew me quite well. But yet, even though I was standing right in their midst, at least at first, they didn't recognize me. And that moment took place, various moments, throughout my life, whenever I would shave my beard. As most of you who know me know, I have usually had quite a lengthy beard, much longer than it is now, and that's been usually the pattern. And I can remember each time when I decided to shave my face completely and just go completely clean, each time my children's reactions were one of, well, Jude, I can remember him being scared, looking at me with this sort of frightful look in his eye. I can remember John, I mean, he's a toddler, you know, little guy, sitting on my lap and looking intently into my eyes and stroking my face over and over again to make sure it really was his daddy. I can remember Lincoln just crying. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the last time I actually shaved completely, Lincoln's first response was, no, no, daddy, put it back on, put it back on. Oh my gosh, you know. And so each of my children have had a moment where even though I was still the same man, even though I still had the same voice, they didn't recognize me. In our story today, we meet two disciples of Jesus who in the same way cannot recognize the risen Christ standing in their midst. And it is not because, you know, the Lord got a clean shave while he was in the tomb. No, there, there's actually profoundly theological reasons for why they couldn't recognize him. In fact, it's not an accident. The text very purposely tells us that they were, quote, kept from recognizing him. That, that word, that sentence in biblical Greek is a theological passive statement. What it means is, is they were indeed purposely kept by God from recognizing Jesus. Now, why would that be? Well, I think as we go through the narrative, we're going to see the reason for that is because Jesus wants to be recognized in a certain way. If we are going to identify who Jesus is, there are certain things that are going to need to be markers of that identity in order for us to get an accurate picture of who he really is, who the real Jesus is. The first marker or the first sort of a point that Jesus leads them to is he basically says to them, if you would recognize the real risen Christ, you must also recognize the necessity of his cross. If you would recognize Christ, you must recognize the cross. Of course, that's not at all what the disciples actually 
felt at the time when Jesus had appeared to them here and they didn't recognize him? As a matter of fact, they were absolutely convinced, I'm sure of it, most of them, that the cross was the moment that their dreams had died. And for good reason. I mean, we, we, it's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of a person living in the ancient world that would see crucifixions all the time because it's just so inhumane and so torturous. And I think we understand sort of the physical aspect of it. it it's incredibly brutal, incredibly painful. But, but we have to remember also that in the Roman world, the crucifixion was primarily done to utterly humiliate the person, the victim, as a, as a means of warning the rest of the population that this same humiliation would come upon them if they crossed the Roman Empire. One example of how they would humiliate people. When we typically see paintings or uh, depictions of crucifixions, we typically see the person depicted with some clothing on, you know, at least clothing around their midsection to cover their nudity. In reality, that is not what would happen at all. In fact, the cross would display their nakedness for all to see. There was nothing that was more shameful in the ancient world than displaying your nudity to the world. And yet that is what happened to Jesus. And so as the disciples are walking and talking about these things, it is most certainly true that if there's one thing they wish didn't happen, it was that Jesus was crucified. What a shameful end to this man's ministry. Indeed, there's hints of that in the text. Notice that they use past tense language. They say, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was, past tense, a prophet, mighty in deed and word. You skip on down a few verses later, verse 21. We had hoped, past tense, that he was the one to redeem Israel. The disciples thought the cross was the end. But Jesus will show us that it is just the beginning. That in fact, we cannot recognize Christ as he wishes to be seen if we do not have the cross placarded front and center in front of us all the time. This is why Jesus says to them, sort of rebuking them, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The word for necessary here could be translated divinely necessary. It is necessary. If we would recognize Jesus, we recognize his cross. This is why Paul would say to the, the Corinthians in his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians uh, 1, I've decided to preach nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul knew that this was a scandalous message that didn't really have any natural appeal to anyone. The idea of worshiping or bowing down to a crucified victim was not something anyone had ever heard of before. He even says as much in that same letter to the Corinthians. He says, you know, I, I get it. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But even though that would be more appealing if we went that route, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block both. And yet, what does he say? 
to those who are called, both to Jews and to Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Unfortunately, and I do mean that, I mean far too often what passes for Christian preaching doesn't actually present the cross to us over and over and over again. Matter of fact, it ends up presenting, well, a Jesus that gives us helpful tips and a Jesus that gives us well, ways to live. But sometimes it avoids the cross altogether. It reminds me of a famous quote from theologian H. Richard Niebuhr in a book in which he was writing about sort of the way that American preaching was done, a book called The Kingdom of God in America, all the way back in 1937, by the way, in which he said, the preaching often sounded like a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Far too often, sermons are filled with spiritual life coach type tips. But what these talks end up doing is talking about Jesus in a way in which he does not wish to be recognized. If we would recognize Christ, we must acknowledge the cross. Because on that cross is where God's eternal plan is fulfilled, in which he can be gracious to human beings because Jesus has atoned for the sins of all, and yet he can still maintain his justice. But that's not all Jesus wants his disciples to understand before they can recognize him. He also wants us to recognize him in connection with his word. Look at what happens in verse 27, the very next verse. And beginning with Moses, this means the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah, and the prophets. That's a shorthand way of saying the rest of the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, what a Bible study, right? I mean, can you imagine the Lord being like, okay, let me, let me tell you what this book is actually about. And what does he say the book is actually about? It's all about me, Jesus says. It's all about him, every bit of it. To his opponents, his theological opponents in John chapter 5, he says to them, you search the scriptures constantly because you think that in them you have eternal life, but you fail to recognize that they're all about me. They're all supposed, you're supposed to, in other words, Jesus is saying, you're supposed to read the scriptures, looking on every page for how they point to me. This is an entirely different way of reading these scriptures than what the, these disciples or anyone else have been trained to do. Folks, the Bible is not basic instructions before leaving earth. It is not primarily a spiritual guidebook of moral examples for us to follow. It just isn't. I know, I know we've been taught that so, so, so often. But Jesus says otherwise. No, Jesus says, if you want to know what the book's about, it's about me. Tim Keller does a wonderful job of describing this. It's one of my favorite talks he's ever given. I, I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit of what he says because I so agree with it and he says it better than I could. He says, quote, the Bible is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. 
The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better rock of Moses who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. And folks, I could go on with the entire Old Testament. Every character there is, every part of it is pointing us to, meant to show us Jesus. And Jesus is saying to the disciples here, if you would recognize me, if you would know me for who I actually am, you have to know my word is all pointing to me and what I've done. Jesus is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true Passover lamb, the true light, and the true bread of life. It's all about him. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative about one single person, Jesus. And yet, even after what had to be an amazing Bible study with Jesus in which their minds are just being constantly blown by all the insights he's given them. Interestingly enough, they still don't recognize who's with them. They still don't see him. Now you would think by this time, I mean, these are the big things, right? The cross and the word of God, that that's the instruments by which Jesus would reveal himself to them. But not yet. Not yet, because Jesus also wants us to know and them to know that if we would recognize him, we also would recognize him at his table. We pick up the story, verse 30, by this time they've arrived at their destination and they've gone inside for the evening. They're going to have some dinner. And it reads like this, verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This is such a fascinating event. Of all the things that were going on before, they still didn't see him. But when he broke the bread for some reason, boom, that's when they were uh, they, were, they had their eyes opened. And again, it was done by God. The disciples finally recognize the risen Christ in their midst. And he breaks bread. This isn't an accident. You know where I'm going with this. I know you do. Over and over again, what does Jesus do as he tries to connect with people throughout his ministry, in Luke's gospel especially? He has table fellowship with them. He eats a meal with them. To the, to the most notorious sinners, what does he do? He breaks bread with them. What is Jesus partly saying here as he breaks bread with these two disciples? I am present with you. I'm relating to you. I accept you. We're in fellowship together. That is true. 
What does Jesus call himself in John's Gospel? I am the bread of life. What does Jesus do on his last night with the disciples before he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane and is arrested by the mob? He breaks bread and declares to them with that bread that he is giving them his very body. As the disciples gather with him to eat, suddenly it's then upon the breaking of the bread they recognize him for who he really is. If we are to recognize Christ, it is not merely looking back to the cross where we see him. It is not merely his word in which we see him, but it is also at his table where his body and blood are given for us. I was talking with a mentor of mine a while back named Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. We were actually in a roundtable discussion together, and this issue of communion came up, and, and he was talking about how great it was that each week we could go forward to the altar, and we could hear the minister say to us, the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. And I was agreeing with him, amening that, you know, I, I miss doing that more than anything with you, Epiphany. Having communion every single Sunday is just such a special thing to me about our fellowship and about our congregation. But one of the things I mentioned to Rod that I love the most about our church is that when we do take communion, most of you, if you've been coming for any length of time, as you receive the body and blood of Christ, I can say to you by name, the body and the blood given for you. And my friend Rod, who's been a Christian for decades, teared up at it again. The thought, the thought that Jesus would make himself so available in something so easy to get a hold of, bread and, and wine, so, so accessible, so simple. And yet through that, declare to us, that we are forgiven in total is mind-boggling. And yet it is what the disciples needed in order for them to see him and recognize him. And what is the result of this revelation? I don't know if you noticed at the very beginning when I read this story, these two disciples are heading away from Jerusalem. Now we know that in Jerusalem, that's where the disciples were holed up, the rest of the disciples, the 11 and those who were with them, that's what it says. But they're, they're going away from the city. In fact, seven miles away to Emmaus. Now we can't be sure as to what their reasoning is for that, but I think it's pretty, at least rational and at least a decent possibility that they may have been leaving because they were disillusioned by the whole thing. That maybe they were leaving the band of disciples because they were convinced that the Jesus movement was over. You can't be sure, of course, but I think it's possible. What's interesting to me in conclusion here is what these disciples immediately do upon recognizing the risen Christ in their midst. 
We're told they literally, that hour, that moment, when they recognize Jesus, he's vanished from their midst. They recognize him. What do they do? They immediately return back to where they came from. In other words, they change direction, which is the literal meaning of repent. They turn back. Indeed, that is the result that comes to us as well when we realize that Jesus is who we said he is. We are repented. We are turned around from the direction we were heading and brought into the fellowship of God's people, celebrating the good news of his life, death, and resurrection, recognizing the Christ who endured the cross for us, who speaks to us from his word, and comes to us even now at his table. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you make yourself so accessible to us. We thank you that you won't allow our vision of you to be uh, skewed or to be tainted, that, that as we see with these disciples, you don't allow them to see you until they see you in your cross and in your word and at your table. Father, I pray again for those who have heard this word this morning, that you would give them eyes to see over and over and over again. And now, Father, we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.